from the studios of Bay FM in Byron Bay and broadcasting across Australia on the Community Radio Network, you're listening to Not Thinking Straight with Michael Mack, a broadcast that celebrates the talent and diversity of the LGBTQ plus community and their allies and provides a place to showcase their remarkable voices and stories. And what an exciting Not Thinking Straight we have for you tonight. We're going to Melbourne. And you're going to get a personal tour of the Victorian Pride Centre, which has only just recently opened. Justine Della Riva, the CEO of Victorian Pride Centre, is going to walk us through the building and chat with me about how it all came together. And then we're going to meet our other special guest, Nick Henderson from the Australian Queer Archives, who are housed in the Pride Centre. Nick's going to tell us about the mission and the history of the archives. And speaking of archives, we're heading back to 1976 once again to visit the Emerald City, a project which saw the beginning of the first gay TV show on American television. Regular listeners may remember the last time we visited this project. We had an amazing interview between Vito Russo and Larry Kramer. This time, word is out. Word is Out, Stories of Some of Our Lives is a 1977 documentary film featuring interviews with 26 gay men and women. It was directed by six people collectively known as the Mariposa Film Group. Peter Adair conceived and produced the film and was one of its directors. The film premiered in November 1977 at the Castro Theatre in San Francisco and went into limited national release in 1978. Word is Out startled audiences across the country when it appeared in movie theatres and on television. The first feature-length documentary about lesbian and gay identity made by gay filmmakers, the film had a huge impact when it was released and became an icon of the emerging gay rights movement of the 1970s. In this episode of Emerald City, Vito Russo returns to talk to two of the filmmakers in the project. Here's a little teaser for you, the trailer from the film Word is Out. think it's true for all of us, but working on this film was a life-changing experience. I thought I came across as somewhat of an idiot. <laughs> you know, well-intentioned, God knows, but, but, uh, but a little bit of an idiot. I was 19 years old, and I picked up a magazine, and there was a little classified ad in the back of the magazine, which read... We are looking for a gay male to work on a film about gay lifestyles. No experience necessary, just insane dedication and a cooperative spirit. Peter had a passion about his own life and about gay people. There were no images of gay people. And I remember him saying he was going to make this film no matter what. It was the scariest thing. It was like very scary. It was like someone, if you're at a swimming pool and someone said, jump off the high board. And here were a small group of us that had been gathered on the stage and the light was shown on us and said, now you speak. My dad calls and he says, uh, Cindy, um, I understand you've been in a movie. <laughs> and I thought, ooh, oh boy. <laughs> I had only been out a few years and I was kind of naive about the whole thing, honestly. And um, my picture was in the Sunday New York Times and somebody sent a picture to the mayor and said, did you know you have a lesbian vet in town? I think you ought to run her out of town. 
Peter told me and Vito told me, uh, should I quote it there? They said, he said, we got too many dikes in the woods. We need, we need to get some business types in here. But my motivation originally was just to kind of push the peanut along and, and do what I could for the cause. Peter turned over the power of the director to the Mariposa Film Group, to all of us. We all participated equally in the shaping of the film. I don't think that we ever really saw ourselves as filmmakers and the other people were subjects. We didn't ever feel separate from who we were talking with. Most of us are from here originally, and we came out here for a reason, and there was a certain culture going on out here that wasn't going on anywhere else in the country. Communal culture. I mean, the other thing is that we had a lot of fun. We were also, <laughs> each of us, in our own way, continuing to come out. So the process was so... Self-exploratory. It was. It was self-exploratory. It was affirmative. It was... Mm. It was... A fun time. It was. It was incredible. How many people? I'm sure, at least 100. I know I had at we least 25. Day after day after day. Peter really guided us through those shoots. He was there at all of them. He did the lighting. I mean, he really. And then, and then he's kind of just sat back and. What the. <laughs> I'm living out a dream that I and many others of us had because every morning I go into this small town and I do yoga and then I talk with Republicans and Mormons and Baptists and we disagree but we love each other. We got nine grandkids. Nine grandchildren. And two great-grandchildren. And, great and uh, they just turned out great. They really did. No thank thing? you. Oh, thanks. Did I grow up already? I wouldn't supposed well, to. Well, I know. Uh... And there's a little preview of our upcoming interview with Vito Russo and two of the filmmakers of Word Is Out. Recently, we presented here on Not Thinking Straight a special called Asylum, and we begin this broadcast with a postscript. Recently, I spoke to Renee Dixon, the co-founder of Forcibly Displaced People's Network, an organisation that advocates for LGBTQI refugees and asylum seekers and helps them on their journey in Australia. Here is that interview. My very special guest on Not Thinking Straight today is Renee Dixon, who is the co-founder of the Forcibly Displaced People's Network. Thank you, Renee, and welcome to Not Thinking Straight. Thank you, Michael, for having us. Renee, would you like to talk about the specific issues that LGBTQI refugees and asylum seekers are confronted with? Violence against LGBTQ people is committed by many actors, including family members. LGBTQ community flee from forced marriages, gender-based violence, execution, imprisonment, death threats, threats from their family and community members. They flee from damaging medical procedures or conventional 
practices, conversion practices, and this list can continue. According to ILGA International, some form of violence of persecution exists in one third of the world. However, in addition to the violence that inflicted through the law, we must take into account that impact of patriarchy, societal and family pressure that also prevent people from living in safety and dignity, and even where is no specific law around it. And the threats obviously vary from homeland to homeland. How do LGBTI people deal with those threats? I give you a very probably short answer. They're surviving. I understand, yes. Very hard. And how would an LGBTQ person plan to make an escape from an unsafe place? So at FDPN, we use uh, language of LGBTQ forcibly displaced people as people have different levels of privileges and circumstances. So some people can have this opportunity to go to Western countries and stay as a migrant, study, and maybe later apply for protection visa. But most of the people escape their countries without even a suitcase. We're leaving behind our families, friends, everything that we love. And we hope that in a Western country, we will live free and without fear. We saw reports that people, when they escape uh, and during this journey, they have very dangerous experiences. And this violence continues from other refugees or smugglers. And it's important to know that there are inequalities in who and how can leave their country. For example, there is still around 30 countries in the world where women need to have husband permission to apply for passport. 16 countries where a married women need to still ask permission to, uh, of husband to leave their home. So trans people whose ID do not match their appearance, it will be the, the barrier to get the visa and to cross the border as well. And there is a tendency to always to discuss how bad it was before, then to go to the details of the abuse without really going into the same details about what is really happening when people do arrive to safety. That is more relevant uh, in the context of the work that we do at FDPN. So we're trying to support LGBTQ forcibly displaced people to be included and to find the community in Australia and and support. So when they arrive to Western countries, often LGBTQ refugees do not have any support. They don't, don't often uh, have a language and they don't know anyone. And in Australia, settlement services, they are not trained and they assume that everyone who's coming into their doors, they're all heterosexual. So LGBTQ people can be placed into unsafe households and this homophobia and bullying and transphobia is continuous. Often LGBTQ organizations do not provide help and assistance to people on a bridging visa or people who doesn't have a Medicare card. So this racism xenophobia, transphobia, language barrier, precarity of the visa and unrecognized education, lack of support from families and communities don't make this settlement easier in new country. So now we have every day one or two inquiry to top up mobile phone because we had experiences when people doesn't have money to call and ask for help and they, in our backyard in Australia, starving for days because they don't have food. Some people can't pay their 
medical bills. And we had the cases when families coming to Australia and trying to track down their kids. And we know what will happen with them if they would find them. So often we need to cut this connection to our ethnic community to be able to survive. And FDPN is a peer-run organization that supports and helps our community that we can as well provide trainings and assist other services to be able to build their capacity to support this group. But unfortunately, we're doing this job without any financial support from government or any other body. It's distressing to hear that they have such issues even when they get to a, to a refuge place. But within the camps themselves, they're almost often refugees within a refugee situation. And uh, they have particular issues in the camps. Some are subject to violence and abuse. Can you talk to that? Uh, back to my point about um, being privileged and being able to travel, many people will end up in refugee camps and that will be the safe space for them. But yet, it's a lot of violence happening in refugee camps. Kakuma refugee camp in Kenya is one of the examples where LGBTQ are subjected to violence at ongoing basis. Several LGBTQ people were already killed during this year. When we raped killed and disappeared no one mourns and when we survive and get protection visa in other countries it's for the first time when our lives considered as valuable apart from people like you what other groups are operating that sphere to help and protect them both within the camps and and when they arrive in a country it really depends on the country. There are more organizations in Europe and North America compared to Australia. There is the, we are the first organization that LGBTQ refugee led in Australia. There is also peer support groups in Sydney and two in Melbourne. Despite the fact that LGBTQ displacement is one of the most serious issues that LGBTQ community faces today, not much attention has been paid to this from the mainstream LGBTQ communities, unfortunately. And do you feel generally they are less accepted from countries because they're LGBTQ? If you mean in terms of how many LGBTQ peoples are accepted as refugees, it's difficult to say because neither United Nations Refugee Agency or, for example, Australian government collect this data. In the UN, we have countries who deliberately working on exclusion of any language on LGBTQ. Uh, globally, it's believed that between 3 and 6% of all refugees are LGBTQ people. But you need to understand that from all of these millions of refugees that exist in, 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 uh, currently, only 1% will be resettled. So what have DPN doing? We talking to other different stakeholders, trying to increase numbers for specifically LGBTQ refugees being able to come to safe countries and be resettled in Australia. In terms of the support, this invisibility trickles down to the services uh, and many resettlement services, spaces, they don't uh, even imagine that refugee can be queer or trans person. And we're not talking enough about this in Australia, unfortunately. We're not acknowledging that people are prosecuted sim simply because who they are, how their bodies looks like, and who they love. And then we're talking 
talking about this group. And when we are finally talking about this group, we either fetishize them or make them exotic. So for LGBTQ forcibly displaced people to be accepted and included, we need to expand our understanding of both who can be a refugee and who can be an LGBTQ person too. In my research and my understanding, uh, many evangelical groups, particularly from America, have moved into the African sphere and the Pacific Islands to preach what they consider Christianity, but often is hate and homophobia. Would you agree that, that that's an issue that really needs to be tackled? On one hand, conservative religious groups are targeting LGBTQ people. And it's important to not generalize it. It was colonization that brought homophobia and transphobia to many countries, including non-Western countries. Sexual, gender, and bodily diverse people existed in every documented culture. But with the colonization and patriarchy, these people became subject to violence. And LGBTQ genocide, unfortunately, has never stopped. For many LGBTQ people, connection to their religion are still significant and inherent part of who they are. And we can see that shifts more and more in different faith-based organizations start creating more inclusive and supported spaces where they openly support LGBTQ people. Well, that's very good to hear. What are the ways people listening to this show and people in general can help LGBTIQ refugees? The FDPN is the first registered LGBTQ refugee-led organization in Australia, and you can support our work by donating so that we can provide tangible support and bring the systemic change to our community. You can sign up to our uh, mailing list, uh, engage with other social social media and continue helping our content to be more visible and get in touch with us so maybe you would like to volunteer and help us and visit our website and learn more about how you can be an ally for LGBTQ forcibly displaced people. So the organization is Forcibly Displaced People's Network. People can Google that. What is the website? fdpn.org.au Fantastic. Well, love to talk to you, Renee. I'm so pleased that you're in a safe place and um, anything we can do at any time, we will. Yeah, Thank it's, you it's so much. terribly. Thank you, Michael, to talking about uh, f- f- with us about these issues. Well, we it's, really it's, it. it's very important um, and very tragic, really. And it's wonderful that people like you exist and, and stand up and use your life lessons to help other people. So I'm very respectful and um yeah. Thank you so much. Don't cry, please. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, okay. Well, <laughs> I would like to hug you. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, it's the world is a strange place, very strange place. And um, yeah. Yeah. Great. Okay, lovely to meet you. Thank you so much for your person. time and, and doing this work. We really appreciate it. Pleasure. Bye-bye. See ya. Bye. And if you'd like to support and financially help the Forcibly Displaced People's Network, please get in touch with them. Their website is fdpn.org.au. 
And on that website, you can also sign up to the Canberra Statement, which affirms the rights of LGBTIQ plus people seeking asylum and refugees to safety, justice and freedom. It takes literally five seconds to do. It doesn't cost anything and you don't need to put any contact information there. Also on that page, you can donate money to go directly to LGBTQI plus refugees and asylum seekers in need in Australia. If you'd like to follow them on Facebook, their Facebook is Forcibly Displaced People Network. And you can also find them on Twitter at FDPN underscore LGBTIQ or just search for Forcibly Displaced People Network. You're listening to Not Thinking Straight with Michael Mack. I spent all my childhood and all my life in Moscow. It's not the place where you want to live if you are gay. They say you are free like to beat gays, to kill gays, and people feel that they have the right to do this. I was beaten by police, I was laying down in blood during the attempt of gay pride. There is no any place where you can be sure you are safe. You never know what's going to happen to you next minute, tomorrow, next hour. Nicaragua is no easy country for the gay people. I never say it's, I am a lesbian in Nicaragua, never. The only person who I open talking about it was my grandma, because my grandma uh, protect me. My friend was working in the gas station, and when I go to the gas station and ask him for my friend, say some, something happening with him, nobody know. My friend was gay too. The people from the town, there is a rumor, and they killing my friends. They never got it, the, the people who killed. Uganda, Uganda is home. Home is always good and sweet. It is a sweet place where life can be very miserable for certain members of society. I am a transgender identifying individual. Our own people do not understand it yet. They are only beginning to understand the issue of sexual orientation. The local pastors claimed to be able to heal people from homosexuality. The pastor came right for me and they took me on the stage and they started to strip me naked. And they were laying hands on me all over, including my genitals. They hurt me physically. I was so embarrassed, ashamed. It was very nasty. Sometimes you even think that it's how it should be. It's how other people live. But of course, after certain incidents, you have to make a decision to leave the country, which I did. And I never regret. When David was killed, David Cato, 
I started to smell death. I started feeling like death was close. This is David and me. This guy was an activist uh, before me. Here, he thought I would die before him even. He thought I would be killed before him. My grandma, she told me, you need to, to look for a safe place. You just stay here in Nicaragua, you never can like, build your family. It was her, it was really her. I said I am not ready to die. I have a daughter that I love so much. I am not ready for her to be an orphan. I need to save my life and I have a dream now, a personal dream. And I plan my exit. In the political asylum is not easy. I don't found an immigration equality. I don't think so can I do that something in my life now here. When people want to come here, I'm like, I don't know. But if you know that your, your life is really, really, really in trouble, take off for your life. Exit. Then immigration equality is your brother or sister at that point. Immigration equality gave me an interpreter. I found lawyers who took my case pro bono. Imagine if you just left your country and came here and then there's no group like immigration equality. You're not sure about where you're going to sleep. You're not sure about the food you're going to eat. You don't have that money most of the time. How are you going to find a lawyer in a strange country and how are you going to pay them? I live in now in the United States for 10 years. When I come here, I really won the lottery because I met Leida. After my grandma, um, probably she is the better person in my life. Definitely. I'm kind of getting back to my feet now that uh, I won the asylum. I love my life here. I found a lot of friends. I drew my art. I found a nice job. I've never had such a life. It, it would be impossible in Russia. I think that I'm beginning to get back what I lost. And I want to study music and probably I will do some activism through the instruments. The decision to leave is your decision about your life. I'm not the strongest person, but sometimes it's the choice of your life. Yeah, it's the choice between life and death. So after 10 years, my grandma passed away in December, the last December. She was a hundred year old. She called me and said, I know you are happy now. I know you got your family. I really was so happy to know Fernando. I am ready to go. She told me I am ready because she know for sure I am safe and happy now. You're broken down and tired of living life on the merry-go-round. And you can't find a fighter. But I see it in you, so we gon' walk it out. We gon' walk it out and move on days. And I rise up, I rise like the day. I rise up, I rise unafraid. I rise up, and I do it a thousand eight times again. And I rise. Up, 
The silence is in quiet And it feels like it's getting hard to breathe And I know you feel like dying But I promise we'll take the world to its feet Move I won't dance Bring it to its feet Move I won't dance And I'll rise up I'll rise like the day That we have each other We will rise We will rise We will rise Oh We will rise I'll rise up Rise like the day I'll rise up In spite of the age, I will rise a thousand times again, and we'll rise up. I like the waves, we'll rise up in spite of the age, we'll rise up, and we'll do it a thousand Studios of Bay FM and Byron Bay, and broadcasting across Australia on the Community Radio Network, you're listening to Not Thinking Straight with Michael Mack. And my very special guest on Not Thinking Straight today is Justine Della Riva. She is the CEO of the Victorian Pride Centre, which is an amazing creation. And we're going to talk about how that came about, what it does, who the stakeholders are within the building, and all sorts of fun things. So, Justine, welcome to Not Thinking Straight. Thank you, Michael. Thanks for having me on. I've been really looking forward to talking to you, Justine. This is such an exciting project. So we'll start at the beginning. How did this all come about? It's been a long journey. It's been a, an amazing journey. So it's um, five years, I think, in the making from when the, the Victorian Pride Centre uh, organisation was incorporated with a, a skills-based 
boards or a group of well-respected community members. The former commissioner for LGBTIQ plus communities, Ro Allen, would say they tapped on the shoulder and if some of them had known what they were being tapped on the shoulder for, they might have they might have changed their mind and not said yes at the beginning, but they all did. The the vision of a of a Pride Centre really as most great things came from community. So a group of community leaders were discussing the, the situation of some of the established organisations and talking about the need for safe and, and welcoming place for LGBTIQ people, but also a place where some of these organisations could be able to call a home, have a, a sense of stability into the future. And so really the, the Pride Centre is the vision of, of the community and it got originally the backing from the Victorian state government to do a, a I suppose what you'd call a, a business plan or a, a review or a view on, on how something like this could come to fruition. And that business case came out of a consultation with a broader group of community members. So I think there was about 60 community members or individuals of different organisations that came together in a very large work shop to discuss what a Pride Centre would look like, how it would function, who it would be in there. And that workshop was facilitated by PwC. They did it pro bono for the organisation and that really set the foundations of the development of the Pride Centre and, and you know, really sort of drove the, the journey. And the business case uh, was so strong it meant that the Victorian State Government through the Department of Quality provided the organisation with its first initial grant of $15 million to begin the process of building the Pride Centre. And that journey included a, a design competition so the consultations identified that, you know, the Pride Centre was going to be a home to a number of organisations or community groups and, and individuals were looking for meeting room spaces, for a space to celebrate culture and arts. So there was this idea of what it, what it could be and then really it was going out to the market, the design and architectural market to say, well, you know, what, what will it look like? And so a design competition uh, was undertaken and we had an independent group of individuals sit on, on the panel to review the, the designs coming in and uh, in the end the, the design that you see or the building that you see that's now on Fitzroy Street in St Kilda was the, the successful or the winning design and it was a, a design done by uh, some local St Kilda architects, a, a consortium, uh, Grant Amon Architects and uh, really architects and urbanists and they really took on the the brief of the idea of creating a, a welcoming and inclusive space and have designed something that's truly iconic I think since opening and, and people have seen the building one of the one of the things that, that they often say to me is that they feel that the the center really does reflect a sense of worth in the community and a, and a sense of self-worth that we frankly deserve something as stunning and as beautiful as the the pride center but it was no mean feat to to get there because uh, it cost a lot more than 15 million and so a lot of the work that the organization uh, has 
had to do over the over the journey was to continue to uh, seek support and so we were able to secure some additional funding from the Victorian state government but we also received some significant support from community so individuals who put money into the into the concept into the the vision of creating a, a place of belonging and support and pride for our diverse LGBTIQ communities and we also have a mortgage so uh, all combined and together the the center cost around 32 36 million to build and the city of Port Phillip where the center is located We've also had significant support from, they actually in the end donated the land on which the Pride Centre sits and that land's worth uh, around about 14 million. And so altogether, we have this amazing LGBTI community asset of worth about $50 million that I don't think, you know, exists anywhere else in the world. We are the second largest Pride Centre in the world, just behind LA, and we're Australia's first purpose-built LGBTIQ Pride Centre. There there was a centre originally, I think, in New South Wales, in Sydney, that uh, had that concept of bringing some organisations together. But the Pride Centre in Victoria is really the first time that there'd been a real focus and uh, an aim to create something from the beginning. So the other key thing that I think is really interesting and important to recognise is the the centre is actually built on the, uh, well, it's built on the lands of the Bunurong people, but where where it was was the originally uh, called a, a restaurant called Munro's Restaurant. And in the late 70s and 80s, many of our trans community would meet at Munro's. They'd come through the, the back door, so through Jackson, Jackson Street and meet together. Uh, it was a safe space then and it's amazing that we've been able to create this Pride Centre and instead of the trans community having to come through the back door, they now very much come through the front door. How wonderful. What an extraordinary story. And extraordinary that, um, I mean, it's sad to say we've got to say this these days, but it is extraordinary to have a whole a government supporting a pride centre like this. I imagine there are some states in Australia that that could be quite a struggle with, but um, and I'm sure there was lots of negotiations, as you said, but it's just the most wonderful thing. I think we were very, very lucky in Victoria in the sense that we have the, the commissioner, so the, a commissioner that's actually focused on the LGBTIQ plus community, and I... I feel that having uh, somebody such as Ro Allen in that role really did make a difference to the the government and the different governmental departments making a commitment such as this and such a large commitment. But again, I think the Andrews government here is very much focused on uh, being progressive and so uh, committing to equality in Victoria is very much a part of, of I suppose, their their platform and their policy and, and agenda focus. And so sometimes you have to be in the right place at the at the right time. And I think for this this particular project to get that level of support was very much aligned with with the other key policies and and focus of the of the current you know the current Victorian government. Um, not to say that I think other governments and other political parties you know don't see the value in supporting the LGBTI community um, but I think it's always a, a, 
something that we have to lead with and have those have those conversations and connections and, and dialogue to bring people on the journey of understanding why a, a place such as the Pride Centre uh, is important and makes a and makes a difference to the a difference to the lives of, of LGBTIQ people. And is that space now secure long term for LGBTI community? Yeah, yeah. So part of our um, agreement with the city of Port Phillip uh, is that the Pride Centre is um, uh, uh, operated and and predominantly uh, owned well owned and operated by our ourselves as uh, the Victorian Pride Centre, but also that the organisations within the Pride Centre. 80% of which need to be LGBTIQ focused, either owned or operated or delivering services to the LGBTIQ community. And we have to make that commitment for at least the next 17 years. I'm sure there's some budding philanthropists out there listening to this. Is there a place on the website where people can give their money to or leave the bequeath? Oh, them? yes. Yeah, of course, most definitely, because we do have a we do have a mortgage still that needs to be needs to be paid, and uh, and in terms of just the the operations of the centre, our agreements with the different resident organisations are all sort of built on their capacity to pay, and so any support, ongoing support that we get from our donors and our patrons and philanthropic uh, investors are important to the long term sustainability of the of the centre. It helps us activate different aspects of the aspects of the center and so if you do go on to the website on to pridecenter.org.au there is a, an area that covers the the many different ways that community can support us so we've got for instance you know cornerstone and pride club members that that can pay twenty dollars a twenty dollars a year all the way up to things like naming rights again because we want to we want to foster that sense that everybody owns everybody owns the pride center it's theirs it's for community it's by community and it's owned by community so if you've got 20 bucks that's fantastic uh if you don't and you want to volunteer that's also fantastic as well as we really do value the support of uh larger donors and uh, and our corporate sponsors because they really do help us to support the organizations in there and provide opportunities for greater access to the different um, parts of the center and it's a great opportunity for lgbtiq community to think about what they're going to do with their wills you know when they when they sort of work yes. that out and it's great to support our own organizations and make sure that they survive and thrive yes. and and to us that's one of the key visions or parts of what our strategic focus is is in into the next three years is our role is we're not a the pride center as an organization is not in you know doesn't deliver direct service we're not a a peak organization but what we are as an organization that supports those that are established organizations to create better profile for them to be able to sustain the work that they do on the ground so the archives for example, the Australian Queer Archives uh, are a permanent residence, uh, resident in the in the centre. They're a volunteer-based organisation. They don't get a lot of funding, and so by having them in the centre and supporting them to be in the centre, 
We can facilitate greater access to what they do, to the collection. We can help to, to profile what they, what they do and also build connections with some of those donor bases or those philanthropic opportunities that help to support the work of the archives into the future. So we're very keen on being able to, to profile and support the work of the organisations in the, in the centre because their success is ultimately part of our success. From the studios of Bay FM in Byron Bay and broadcasting across Australia on the Community Radio Network, you're listening to Not Thinking Straight with Michael Mack. today is Justine Della Riva, CEO of the Victorian Pride Centre. And speaking of the archives, I'm going to ask you to take us for a little walk through the building in a minute. Uh, it's now, for those people who haven't seen their pictures on the website, it is so beautiful. And even that swirling is that a staircase in the middle or is that yeah we call that the atrium so the emu egg so the central part of the center goes all the way up to the to the ceiling to the atrium the glass atrium so you can see through to the sky and the concept of the the emu egg uh, was about having a, a structure in the center of the building that reflected emergence, that the community, in a sense, is coming out, coming, breaking through the egg and breaking through the through the roof and emerging, emerging as a, a, a strong, proud uh, community. And it's a really beautiful part of the building because it allows light to flood through each of the different levels. There's seven, seven floors or seven levels in, in total. So it's a very large building. It's around 6,000 square metres in total across the different floors. And so having that central area also connects in each of the different levels in the organisations. And the stairs, which were specifically designed to be able to be used as a bit of a platform, a seating platform, so that you can have performances and forums and spoken word right in the middle of the building as well as in some of the other uh, or in the multi-purpose theatre, which is a separate separate sort of spot on the, on the ground floor. I remember when I saw pictures of that egg, I just saw the computer screen. It, it just moved me incredible. Like, you know, I could feel this resonance. It was... Yeah, so it's just an absolutely extraordinary building. So good on you and good on everyone who who got it going. Now, do you want to give us a little walk through? Yeah, I'd love to. I'd love to. So so the ground floor is, I call the ground floor the floor of social connection. So when you come through the front door, you're greeted by this massive concierge desk. And the desk is staffed by volunteers from community, which is fantastic to have community members there, very diverse community members with a whole range of different lived experiences. And so they're the welcoming face that you're 
that you'll see once you walk in the door. And on that ground floor, we've got a really long co-working desk. We've got some meeting booths. And there you can just hang out. You can just connect into the free Wi-Fi, have an informal meeting, or just sit in the space. It's just about creating that openness and that access to the to the centre. We hope to have a cafe in there as well. We want the the locals to to drop in and grab a coffee. We don't want the the centre just to be for LGBTIQ people. We want our allies and our locals to come in and enjoy the space as well. And on that ground floor, we've got an amazing gallery space. So we've called it the Pride Gallery. And that space will be activated throughout the year with different exhibitions. And we kicked off with a fantastic exhibition of five First Nations queer artists. It's called Identity, Adornment and Transformation. Unfortunately, not many people have seen it due to COVID and the lockdown. But we're going to to put a bit of an online video of the exhibition on the website so that people can experience the, the fantastic works that we're able to display. And, and that gallery space and, and other parts of the centre will be activated throughout the year because we want we want the centre to be a cultural hub too. So an arts and, and performance hub that people will be able to to come and experience a range of different uh, exhibitions and performances. We've got a community group coming together. They're going to be our working group and they'll help guide the visual arts, I suppose, program part of the the Pride Centre over the the course of the year. Uh, On that ground floor, we've also got an amazing theatre or multi-purpose space. It's got a huge 200-inch retractable screen and a very nice projector with some pretty swish audio audio system to boot and so in there or can't wait for MQFF to to do the to do their film festival again for performances who knows we might even have some you know yoga in there on a Sunday morning a lot of the the common spaces or those spaces of social connection we want people to to utilize in the way that that meets their needs and so while we'll be programming some of it at the same time you know we want community to also say and tell us you know this is this is what we want to see and this is what we want to do when we're in the we're in the space if there's anybody listening that has art or costumes from LGBTQI people, are you looking for sort of permanent objects like that, or not at this point? So we're not a we're not in a position to be a collection or a, a collecting uh, organisation. Uh, so often, if we do get a if if community connects and and says that they have a piece, we refer them maybe to the archives as more appropriate. We have a bit of a policy whereby if there's a piece that they want to give to us then we might look to include that in a specific auction or a a fundraising activity because we just don't have the capacity at this point to house and and collect pieces that's not to say we mightn't do that in the in the future but for us it's a it's a bit of a journey and it's a it's a big responsibility to take those those pieces on. If there's artists who want to have the opportunity to display or uh, exhibit in the centre, there'll be an expression of interest process and then that goes to our visual art working group who will over the course of the year look through those requests and help us to, to manage that space. And then you head up to the mezzanine where there are the Australian uh, Queer Archive. And so they've this is their first ever permanent space. They've been able to create an environment where they're uh, displaying some of the collection now, whereas before that wasn't possible. So they've got a little reading area 
And it'll be a great opportunity for people to really connect in with the collection uh, into the future. And then on the first floor, a range of LGBTIQ organisations got minus 18, Joy, the radio station, the Melbourne Queer Film Festival, the Australian DLBTIQ Multicultural Council. We've got Switchboard Victoria, which does online and phone counselling, and they've got the Rainbow Door for referral and do some family violence and outreach work. On the second floor, we've got Star Health and Star Health is a primary and allied health service. They're not LGBTIQ owned or operated, but we call them sort of our cornerstone resident organisation because they're a commercial organisation in the sense uh, in regards to the relationship we have with them and they paying commercial rates helps to support the subsidies that the other organisations get. So they're a big tick for us, but they're also an organisation very much aligned to the to the to the to the Pride Centre. So it's great to have them. That's mainly their admin and back of house and and executive headquarters. And then on the third floor, we've got a range of direct services. Thorn Harbour Health, formerly the Victorian AIDS Council, so they're on the third floor doing primary health allied and counselling services direct to community. The Monash Gender Clinic, which provide services to our trans and gender diverse. Next to them, we've got the Crew Pride Victoria, which is one of the First Nations LGBTIQ orgs. Star Observers, Melbourne office is on the third floor. Financial Services Planner, as well as Transgender Victoria. And I've got my fingers very tightly crossed that we'll have an LGBTIQ legal service on that third floor. So the third floor is kind of like the floor of direct service. You've got the second floor with our health as a cornerstone resident org the first floor where you've got a number of organizations working together and focusing on particular parts of community and then the ground floor is the floor of social connection and it's all topped off by a stunning rooftop which we're building a commercial servery up there to be able to support a range of events. So weddings galore is my also my fingers crossed for weddings galore up there on the on the rooftop and a pretty amazing New Year's Eve party because as a community we do like to celebrate and we do like to have a good party and we need to balance all of those really important aspects of our lives you know so from having great services that help around our health and well-being but also you know ensuring that we are still coming together from that social perspective and celebrating our achievements and our community. It's a pretty amazing building. A lot of the services and that focus is on diversity and on having that holistic approach. So recognising that it's not just a health and wellbeing community hub, it's really about the whole person and the different aspects of our lives that intersect with our identities and, and the way that we move about the world. I can't wait to see it. Gosh. I might have to move back to Melbourne. <laughs> yeah, and a virtual tour only 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 shows so much. But I think the other important thing is that you know it is a physical it is a physical space, but but we're um, very conscious of how we're going to work and reach out from the physical Pride Centre beyond Fitzroy Street or St Kilda or Melbourne or Victoria, but reach out further into the broader LGBTIQ community. And so we've got the Virtual Pride Centre, which is the website where we house a resource directory and and an events calendar. 
but into the future, you know, especially once we sort of get the centre up and running and, and have it running, you know, humming and, and that business of usual, we'll definitely look towards well, what is our role within the broader Australian LGBTIQ community because we can be very much a beacon of hope and a beacon to others even beyond Australian shores, so to those in Southeast Asia. So that'll be the next, I think, part of our journey is very much connecting in with other pride centres, with other communities beyond, just beyond our local shores. Well, I think just knowing that it, that the Pride Centre exists in Melbourne is such validation for people all around Australia and the world. It's a beacon. I'm just so excited. I'm kind of blown away by the whole thing. From the street frontage, is there sort of a logo or is there anything to demonstrate that it's the Pride Centre? Yep, so it does, yeah, it has the Victorian Pride Centre out right on the edge of the street. So the, the actual portico or what we call the portico comes uh, over the street frontage and right onto Fitzroy Street. And so we've got a gorgeous name of the building, not so much the logo, but just a nice subtle representation of Pride and the Pride Centre on the exterior. Uh, the architects were very keen in making sure that the, the building itself was, you know, didn't need a name because it's so iconic. But I did sort of argue with them that, that it, it needed some acknowledgement that it was the Pride Centre because not everybody's going to get an opportunity to see it before they get out of a cab or, or jump off the tram on, on Fitzroy Street. But it's subtle enough to also recognise that for some people coming in to the centre will maybe be the first time that they've acknowledged or come into a public space being LGBTIQ and so we're just wanting to also balance out that experience and knowing that they may come from uh, communities that are less accepting of, of the LGBTIQ community so not also not wanting to sort of scream here we are at the at the same time. And will you be having or do you have planned times for an organised walkthrough with a volunteer to talk about the building? Yes, yeah, we've got virtual and in-person tours. So people were able to book for those via the, via the website. Um, unfortunately, just due to lockdown, we've had to postpone them. But as soon as lockdown's lifted, we'll be doing those again. So anybody interstate can join a group of 10 people in person virtually via Zoom and join me or a volunteer taking you you know taking you through the through the center and talking about the different organizations and the way that you can connect with the pride center that way so my fingers crossed after the 23rd of september we'll know a little bit more around uh, when we can kick those those tours back off fantastic and the virtual representation will be the tour or is there something on the website at the moment where people can go in and watch the film that i saw when it was opened is that on the website they are accessible on our facebook page so if you're a facebook user you can uh, go to the pride center's facebook page and the videos are, are shared on on there the virtual tour is done in person and so that's a really great opportunity for people to interact or ask questions at the same time as opposed to just watching a virtual tour, which we have done for Open House Melbourne. And so that's that's online and available for people to watch. But I would highly recommend that if you do, uh, when we are able to do them again, to, to log in and, and come with us on that journey because you can ask, uh, you know, you can ask me or the 
volunteers' questions at the same time. Wonderful. Well, it's been so exciting talking to you, Justine. Is there anything else you'd like to share with us about the centre? Just that, you know, it's really important for people to to recognise the Pride Centre is there for everybody and that we do want to be that beacon and that there are a range of ways to connect with us and to, to support the Pride Centre and we're always open to feedback and hearing from community, you know, far and wide and we're keen to continue on our journey of understanding what, you know, what we can do to make the lives of LGB or make the world a more inclusive and respectful place for LGBTIQ peoples. And if listeners want to get in touch with any of the residents of the Pride Centre, the website is pridecentre.org.au. Yeah, so there's a, a tab on the website, on the menu that talks about who's in the building or who's who's home. So you can see the different resident organisations and click through to their to their websites as well. Well, thank you so much, Justine. I love talking to you. It's it's yeah, an inspiring, likewise. inspiring project, and you know I'm jumping out of my seat here. <laughs> well, we all need to get let's get vaxxed and get out of it. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah, well, I've had my two, so yeah, I'll be on yeah. the flight to Melbourne as soon as we can do that. Exactly. Lovely. Yeah. Right. So, thank you very much. I really appreciate it. You're welcome, Michael. It's lovely talking. Stay safe. You too. You're listening to Not Thinking Straight. I'm Michael Mack and I've been talking to Justine Valareva, the CEO of the Victorian Pride Centre. From the studios of Bay FM in Byron Bay and broadcasting across Australia on the Community Radio Network, you're listening to Not Thinking Straight with Michael Mack. And very shortly, we're going to head off to Melbourne to the Australian Queer Archives where Nick Henderson, one of the committee members, is going to tell us all about it. But before we do that, one of my favourite singers at the moment, Sydney artist Huck Hastings with It's All Right, It's Cool. I can't click attending because I'm not sure I can go. I would like to, like to party, but they make me feel alone. I suss out all the exits for the fastest way to go So I can run to you, run to you My friends, they all get upset cause I never wanna hang I always leave it open, can't make a solid plan The only place I wanna be is with you hand in hand And so I run to you, run to you Cause I can't commit to anything else but you Whatever you wanna do, it's alright, it's cool It's alright, it's cool with me We can watch TV Monday night on the ABC Get vegan pizza down at Gigi's It's alright, it's cool It's alright, it's cool with me And I'm always clicking maybe because maybe people call And my mom thinks it's unhealthy but I never cared before Cause nothing beats that look the baby gives when he opens the door for me, door for me No, I won't commit to anything else but you Whatever you wanna do, it's alright, it's cool It's alright, it's cool with me yeah, we can watch TV Monday night on the ABC Get vegan pizza down at Gigi's It's alright, it's cool It's alright, it's cool 
And I still get insecure, I'm still not sure what we are called Perhaps they haven't come up with a word for it thus far But you read books on medicine and I read books on art You go to group therapy and I play my guitar I bring you chocolate strawberries, I like white and you like dark You cannot say I love you, but you'll put it in a card We've had a hundred endings, a hundred and one new starts I still run to you, run to you Because I won't commit to anyone else but you Not nobody else will do It's alright, it's cool It's alright, it's cool with me And we can watch TV Monday night on the ABC Get vegan pizza down at Gigi's It's alright, it's cool It's alright, it's cool with me It's alright, it's cool It's alright, it's cool with me pandemic times we really need to get behind our artists and support them if you'd like to hear more of puck's music just head off to his facebook huck hastings and his music is available on all the usual download platforms and now it's time to head off to melbourne and to introduce our segment with nick henderson at the australian archive center who is a committee member for the Australian Queer Archives. And uh, I must salute Nick and all the other volunteers who get involved in these projects. They put a lot of time and effort into it and often don't get the kudos they deserve. But Nick's going to get lots of kudos today. Welcome, Nick. Thank you so much for having me. Pleasure. Now, you're in a new home, the Victorian Pride Centre, which just looks stunning. Oh, look, it's... um... It's really fantastic to be in a home that is purpose-built. We had a significant role in designing our space uh, from the beginning, working with the architect, you know, our floors reinforced uh, because our compactus, our storage is so heavy. And, you know, just just working through all of those different things to create a space that's purpose-built and works for researchers, works for the collection, works for volunteers is a really great opportunity for us. And it's wonderful to have so many LGBTQI groups in the same space. As a project, it was initiated six years ago. It came out of a community need. So at the time, there'd been a number of different community organisations based in three locations at the Peter Knight Centre, which was then Victorian AIDS Council Gay Men's Health Centre, Coventry House, which was in, uh, and still there in Southbank, which was a number of the positive groups, and also City Village, which was owned by the City of Melbourne. So all of the community organisations came together and two of those uh, venues, I guess, Victorian AIDS Council, uh, their building was old and needed either renovation or some alternative, you know, knockdown rebuild. And uh, City Village, all of the tenants were being kicked out by City Melbourne. So it really came from community. It ended up becoming something a bit different in in that it's it's a community company limited by guarantee, not-for-profit, which manages and runs the building itself as a separate 
organization, but having all of the tenants there and having a sustainable building and one which is, you know, beautifully architecturally designed is, is an incredible opportunity for, for all of us. And six years is not a long time really from concept to opening. I mean, it is a phenomenal design. Look, it is. I think a lot of people were a little wary when they saw it. They were like, oh, look, it looks like a, you know, a beehive or a wine rack, uh, which seems, you know, oddly appropriate at the moment. But, um, you know, it is a it's it is a really wonderful space and it's got some really amazing volumes. And, and I think, you know, when we do have an opportunity to really, I guess, program into the space and really I think the, the, the buzzword is activate the space. I think it's a really great opportunity for us and, and for the wider community. I think many people see community spaces as being just a place where people come to, but it really is uh, a core part of it is, is sustainability for the tenant organisations. You know, one of the main reasons why so many community organisations fall over, aside from having to navigate uh, incorporation and board meetings and different personalities, is just because our spaces are sustainable. And so having a building which funds itself and, and where organisations can come and do their work within a sustainable setting is really important. And, of course, the remarkable thing that government support was there. I mean, some states wouldn't even consider a project like this. Oh, look, absolutely. And, you know, it, it, and both local and state government, nothing from the federal government, um, I should point out. They were approached multiple times by multiple organisations, but no. But look, the state government has been remarkably supportive. And, you know, increasingly, I think you see similarly in some of the other states and territories, the ACT in particular, but the Victorian government is throughout the term of this current government has really supported in a lot of different ways. And so, you know, funding programs and supporting capacity building and a whole range of things. I think that's been going on for a long time, the policy development and the Pride Centre is in isolation. You know, a lot of people might be critical and say, oh, look, you know, we, we should have just initially focused focused on homelessness or other issues. And those issues are being dealt with. That could absolutely have been dealt with quicker, but there is a lot of work that's been undertaken that people might see a pride centre up there as being this, you know, whiz-bang amount of money, but it is its investment and its policy and its programs over a long period of time as well. And its building community. Absolutely. Oh, it's, a, it's a great mix and, and, you know, from doing things like whether or not it's Joy Radio to the Career Pride Network, Transgender Victoria, there's a lot of community organisations, many of whom have been around for a long time. I mean, the archives have been around for 43 years. Switchboard has been around for over 20, you know, uh, and similarly, I think, with Transgender Victoria. So there's a lot of a lot of long-term organisations have got a lot of runs on the board in terms of their work. It's not a flash in the pan. I'm just trying to visualise what moving day or moving days was like. <laughs> How on earth did you negotiate that? Oh, look, it, it, it is a lot of work for an archives. We had about 3,000 boxes. But, it, you know, beyond that, I mean, it, we, we've got 650 shelf metres. It, it takes a lot of vans, but it's a lot of work to ensure that it's not just, you know, just chucking boxes in a van. It's quite slow and meticulous work. And we, things like plan cabinets or equipment for digitisation, computers, it, it is quite a complex process for an organisation like us. As I said, they had to reinforce the floor for us. So it is, it's a lot of weight and it's a lot of material and took a lot of people. So when you come in the entrance, it's a double height space at ground floor and then at the back. So we're the only community organisation in that space. So it, it gives us a really a bird's eye view down into the into the entrance and I think hopefully gives us a bit more profile and, and engagement than we've had in the past in, in basements or people's houses. So And is there space to grow within that space now? The- 
Look, not a huge amount. I think one of the things with archives is, is we generally never get smaller. So, you know, we're, we're close to maxing out our space. But even in that, you know, there's uh, ways, there is some capacity within our own space. And then there'll be additional opportunities when, you know, we look at what is higher or lower use and how we can, you know, material would still be accessed even if it's not on site. And we've had that for many years previously with selective material off-site. So, you know, it could be audio-visual, it could be VHS tapes, or it could be magnetic tape, the compact cassettes, which we might keep off-site in low temperature, low humidity. But the bulk, the vast bulk of the collection is on-site. And you're still looking for people to donate collections? and All the time. All the time. You know, that never stops. And, you know, it's both historic material, but it's also current. So often people might think, oh, you know, my, my life that I'm living or, you know, the event that I'm putting on or going to is not as of interest as, say, a diary from camp life in the 1950s. But it's all vitally important. So for us, it's we've, say, got a display on at the moment in our reading room that no one can see because of COVID. But when you can get back into our space, you'll see that it's got, you know, we We've got masks that people have created for, for COVID through to, uh, you know, 1920s lesbian scrapbook. So all of those things are really important. So I think one of the things that we try to do is just to let people know that there's a lot of different ways that they can go about preserving their collection, their material and their community. Please get in touch if you've got material that you'd like to preserve. And I will go through all the different ways people can get in touch, but thequeerarchives.org.au is the website and their Facebook is facebook.com slash capital A, capital Q, small u, archives. And um, if you're in Melbourne and there are no COVID restrictions, you can pop along to the Victorian Pride Centre and pop upstairs on the mezzanine and check it out. There is also a lot of opportunity to access material online. So we do put out material on our Facebook, on our Facebook page and group. But if, if there is material that people are interested in accessing for research, we have uh, lists of various uh, collection material on our website. We, there's also databases and materials. So for example, we did a, a great project in 2019, digitising about 150 of our 2,400 separate newsletter magazine titles. So that's 230,000 pages worth of material, which are text searchable and free to access. So there's a lot of material and there's a lot of ways that you can access material if you can't visit us on site. And Queer Archives would be the preeminent research group in Australia and collection, and I would imagine in the world too. Yeah, look, there is some wonderful other collections around Australia. Some of the state-based state libraries have some fantastic collections and there is some wonderful material out there. We're certainly one of the most prominent in terms of internationally and community-based archives. And most of these collections have started as community projects. And we started in 78, but a lot of the community, community archives, uh, whether or not it's the Lesbian History Archives in New York or the Archives, but with a Q, formerly the Canadian Lesbian and Gay Archives, in Toronto, a lot of these organisations, they started off in a time when homosexuality was still criminalised in lots of different ways and mainstream institutions weren't collecting materials. So this was really a project, whether or not it's ours or others, to preserve material that institutions wouldn't. And, you know, even now with material at the state libraries uh, around Australia, there'll be material in our collection that they wouldn't touch. And I mean that in the sense of it could be leather, it could be s uh, it could be porn or other material. All of that is important as part of our communities and histories and, and can be interrelated. You know, you don't just hive off material and say, no, no, you, we, we wouldn't collect that. And 
You know, look, some people may not think that their love letters, for example, are things that should be preserved in a library, but for us it's all part of existence and it shouldn't just be separated. Absolutely. You're listening to Not Thinking Straight and I'm talking to Nick Henderson from the Australian Queer Archives. Now, some Nick questions. You ready for some Nick questions? Sure. <laughs> I won't get too personal. It's all right. Not quite as interesting as the archives, but far away. <laughs> well, Nick has a beautiful dog sitting next to him. And uh, Is that a, a girl dog or a boy dog? It is a girl dog. A girl um, dog. This is uh, my partner's dog. She's a rescue greyhound. And how old is she now? She's five? Yeah. So she, um, I think... Um, we got her at the beginning of last year. They're very gentle, aren't they, greyhounds, I believe? Lovely. Very yeah. sweet. Great. So, first Nick question. What got you involved in the Australian Queer Archives? Ah, um, look, I've been involved now with the Queer Archives as a volunteer since I moved to Melbourne in 2008. I'm from Canberra. I have had a long history of volunteering in community organisations and I guess also in, in history. I'm an art historian by training and, and work in the cultural institutional sector. So it seemed a bit of a natural fit. I'd actually tried to set up a queer community archive in Canberra, inspired by the information that I came across about uh, what was then the Australian Lesbian and Gay Archives. And uh, unfortunately, that was a bit short-lived. So I, th- I think I was on about five boards at the time and one extra project was a bit too much. But um, yeah, it was was a great you know coming down to Melbourne and and it's a really great volunteer community within the archives and it was a really wonderful opportunity to I guess engage in a deeper level of community so older members gay couples in their 90s through to young newly out university students who are doing research work so it's a it's a it was a real learning experience for me. And would you say the archives are more sort of print or written works than oral works because I'm finding the oral history in Australia much more limited than the print history. I mean, you sent me lots of links to some great resources. Thank you for that too. How would you describe the archives? What's there? Look, I think... One, one thing is is that a community archives are perhaps a bit more than most people would expect. So a lot of people, if they think of an archive, it is very much paper-based. Community archives generally are, are much broader. They kind of dissolve those boundaries that some people might see between galleries and libraries and museums. For our collection, we have a, a thousands and thousands of hours of audio material. So our own collection in terms of oral history recordings as opposed to, say, interviews that might be conducted for radio. And there's a bit of a little bit of a difference there in terms of approach to interview techniques. So we've got about five, a bit over 500 oral history interviews in the collection. They're both interviews that we've recorded as volunteers for the archives and collections which have been donated for particular projects, generally for PhD or postgraduate projects. We also have a, a huge amount of audio from community radio programs and mainstream radio focusing on, on queer topics. We've got a lot of mixtapes and DJ set from, it could be Mardi Gras or other places. Uh, the community radios from around, around Australia, uh, so from, you know, Tamworth, to Perth, to Darwin, Brisbane. A significant portion does relate to Sydney and Melbourne for various reasons. So one of my favourite collections uh, is Gay Waves, which was the first gay radio program in Sydney on 2SER. But we've also got substantial collections from Wild Gals, again, there's been radio service, uh, which is 2RSR, from uh, the nationally syndicated Out and Out program, which was recorded at 2SER, but syndicated around Australia. Grins, the Gay Radio Information News Service, which was a, a six to seven minute cassette tape 
tape, which used to be recorded on a weekly basis, sent out to all of the radio stations around Australia and, and played. So a lot of the a lot of this material includes some really amazing interviews. So I, I think I've indexed 1,200 hours worth of the Gateways uh, program with this amazing collection. Uh, a guy called Bill West, and he was a uh, he had his own radio program on community radio, focusing on uh, 78s. Uh, 78 recordings, uh, discs, but he basically religiously recorded every single three-hour program every week between 1980 and 2000 on quarter-inch reel. So it's an amazing collection with live recordings of protests through to interviews with people at the time. And because print media was was only producing material often on a monthly basis, but it could, it could be fortnightly, you weren't getting that immediacy in terms of information except on the radio. And so most community radio uh, generally isn't recorded other than from, from this period, 70s, 80s, 90s, except for maybe one person would have included, you know, some of their own interviews that they did, but not the whole program and certainly not for the extent of this sort of material. So there's a lot of material in the collection. And I guess with uh, the audio, other sorts of audio collections. The bulk of what what does survive is, uh, in terms of radio, is, is probably split between us a bit uh, at the National Library, sorry, National Film and Sound Archive, and a bit at the State Library. And then you've also, in terms of the oral history collections, a lot of those are formed. So, say, the National Library, uh, uh, State Library of New South Wales, Queensland, and a couple of other places. Um, and a lot still exists with uh, people have undertaken research uh, but haven't always thought that their research, uh, they may have produced it for a PhD thesis, but then they haven't necessarily looked at getting that material into an archive. They didn't necessarily do, get releases to make it accessible. And that can often be a big limitation uh, for making that sort of um, audio recording accessible. Um, yeah. And can those audio sources be sourced from your website or you? what's the procedure to... to... Sure. We hope, we're, we're in the process of really um, getting a lot more of that inf- uh, material accessible. At the moment, um, we've, we've got uh, a lot of material, including transcripts, uh, logs and the recordings, uh, which are accessible. We do have lists up on our website um, highlighting the bulk of these. There's some which we haven't put up in terms of the uh, listing. We don't have the audio up, but the listing um, because there's some restrictions on on use. Uh, so we didn't, uh, for some collections that have been donated but we haven't necessarily got releases for, we won't always put that up because we, we don't know if we can contact that person. We haven't been able to track them down. Uh, to get a release so we're you know we're still trying with a lot of those but the bulk of our collection is is listed and online so if people want to access the collection and they've seen it uh, it listed in in that um, in that listing which is on our collections page and our history um, they can just contact us and we arrange access uh, to either the audio file or the transcript via email or dropbox so a lot of that, a lot of the researchers access our collection from offsite in that way. Yeah. Wonderful. And you have, not at the moment because of the lockdown, but you do have activities there that you, you run, quite a few exciting things. Yes. We're looking forward to doing a lot more. So I'm just having a discussion about some stuff for midsummer, uh, but I'm planning a few uh, things for World Pride. Uh, we do uh, a lot of stuff generally for um, midsummer as the local Pride Festival, but also try and do stalls 
at festivals in other places to highlight what we're we're doing but we lend a lot of material as well so um we've had uh, lent exhibitions uh like the serving in silence exhibition lgbti service personnel um we've had touring exhibitions in regional victoria and and around uh suburban um libraries we've just had stuff up at the national portrait gallery unsw galleries uh tweed regional museum won a, a national museum award for small an exhibition quite a bit of us yeah. uh, material so, yeah. uh, from small town queer so there's a lot of different material which gets used and accessed and uh i think we've got currently got some stuff going into textbooks uh we've put up an online exhibition on australian response to aids for the australian permanent mission to the un uh, so yeah, there's a, there's a lot of those sort of projects happening all the time. Uh, there's also publications uh, that people can buy from our website or from wonderful queer bookshops like uh, the bookshop Darlinghurst and Hairs and Hyenas. Support your local queer bookshop and other projects uh, like History Walks. And as well as that, I think this is a time to bring up um, philanthropy, as well as people donating stuff. Oh yes. Give us your money. Give us your money. Give us yes. your money. Um, look, no. Look, as please become a member. It's um, if if you're interested in finding out more, uh, you don't have to be a member to access the collection or do anything. But it's a, a great support for our work. Uh, it's uh, twenty dollars for a year, which is you know such a tiny amount per month, or five dollars for low-income and students. But we obviously welcome any donations above that. We're a charity, so donations over $2 are tax deductible. And you can do all of that online uh, via our website. And if people want to donate bigger amounts or bequeathments through the website? Oh, look, we're particularly up for that. Please do contact us. We do have some text if you're interested in popping something in a will. And if you are interested in donating uh, physical material, we always recommend that you contact us first so that we know what you've got. So just to make sure that it's five copies of the same thing but just to have a bit of a chat through there may be some things that uh, people think about leaving us but haven't been identified you know we've got some amazing photographs but we just don't know who's in them and so we'd always good to just chat through a few of those things first well it's been great talking to you nick is there anything else you'd like to tell us about the center you know we we uh have a lot of volunteers who are working with us from around australia and overseas at the moment it's mostly online projects uh transcribing oral history interviews or summarizing radio programs and so there's a lot of different things that can be done from offsite. But look, if there is also material that you come across, uh, you know, in terms of in your community, events, posters, flyers, think about just picking those up and sending them off to us. We love having material that's ephemeral, that is documenting local events and activities. And often they can be really hard to, to find and locate after the fact. Wonderful. Well, thank you for taking time out of your Sunday afternoon. I really appreciate it. And uh, thank you very thank much. You. And thanks again for your amazing work and being such a great volunteer. It's inspirational to all of us. Thank you so much for doing the, the program. You know, without uh, projects like yours, people don't hear about what's going on around and it's a big part of community building. Well, lovely to talk to you again. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. And also loving the shirt and the wallpaper. Very oh, thank you. <laughs> it's, it's a whole ensemble. Yes, I have a bit of reputation for the shirts, but um, <laughs> <laughs> I just feel I have to live up to it now, so... <laughs>
great. Lovely to meet you. Awesome. And nice thank you. Okay. Bye. See ya. Bye. And I asked Nick to suggest some music to go with this segment, and he sent me some choices, and they were all good. But Nick's recommendation was a song called Keep On by a collective group called Hen's Teeth, which I will be playing. And then after that, from the same documentary, Toxic Shock with Intoxicated which is uh, from an album called Brazen Hussies, a compilation of Australian women's music from the 70s and 80s. And there's also a documentary film. And before I play the song, here's some clips from the documentary Brazen Hussies. What you're really saying is that you men are superior in every way to all women. Well, that's putting it very simplistically, but basically, yes. It's really hard to explain what it was like growing up in the 50s. We were conditioned to be servants to men. All of us were hijacked in this kind of like domestic nightmare. Up until now, the world has been run by men. That repression of the 50s was really kind of exploding. I felt like I got hit with a sledgehammer. This incredible conversion experience. I remember thinking, we can start the revolution with this. This'll do. It was not a top-down thing. It was a bushfire. It was a grass fire. Battling for abortion rights, childcare, simple things of women not being allowed in the public bar. I think men feel women's abrasion is a threat to their manhood. And it really is a threat to their manhood because their manhood is phony. was not interested in women unless there was a cat fight. How far can we work within a system that we need to get rid of? Fighting each other over reform versus revolution. Lesbians in the women's movement were seen as a hindrance. I found a lot of women's groups really racist. I mean, an unconscious racism. The most oppressed people in this country is the black women. They were singling out behaviour within the movement. We all ask ourselves, is that me? People who make revolutions get burnt, but it's also completely exhilarating. A small band of people can change the world. Women should always band together. Whenever you have a chance, band together. <laughs>
from the studios of Bay FM in Byron Bay and broadcasting across Australia on the Community Radio Network, you're listening to Not Thinking Straight with Michael Mack. And now one of my favourite parts of Not Thinking Straight. Occasionally we dip into the wonderful archives of Emerald City back in 1976 and we dig out some great stories. And today we've got another great one, Vito Russo interviewing two of the filmmakers of the legendary LGBTIQ film, Word is Out. Now please understand that these tapes are almost 50 years old. The sound quality is pretty good. And I think you'll really enjoy this episode. How long have you been in Lotus? I never understand what that means, because as far as I'm concerned, I was born that way. Tonight, our journalist at large, Vito Russo, talks with Peter Adair and Lucy Massey-Phoenix about the making of their new film, Word is Out. Also this evening, the Emerald City goes inside Jan Wallman's restaurant for a look at singer Ava Williams. Good evening, and welcome once again to the Emerald City. For the past several years, seven or eight very dedicated people have been working with a virtual passion on a unique film documentary, which they recently completed and just released in San Francisco. I've personally seen the film go through various stages of development over the past two or three years, and at that point, they'd already been working on it a while. So needless to say, a lot of time, effort, and serious thought have gone into the film, which is entitled, Word is Out. This evening, film journalist Vito Russo, who will be talking with Peter Adair and Lucy Massey-Phoenix, who are two of the people who made the film. Later, it's off to our very favorite restaurant here in the village, Jan Wallman's, which is located on Cornelia Street. You'll be meeting one of the city's foremost hostesses, who's been charming villagers for not that many years. Jan Wallman is presenting on Sunday evenings the song style of Ava Williams, who's a legend in her own right. Many of you might remember her as the toast of P-Town. She's a terrific performer with an interesting repertoire, and I'm sure you're going to love her. Well, there was one girl that used to sing soprano in the choir, and I thought she was just wonderful. And the boys all called me sissies because I always wanted to walk home with her instead of walk home with the fellows. All the fellows were walking together, you know, we say between 10 and about 7 and 10 or 7 and 11. And I was about 8 or 9, and I wanted to walk with the girls. Uh... Later on, when they started walking with the girls, this is when I decided I wanted to walk with the boys. I decided I was in love with this woman, who was obviously not in love with me. And the thing to do was escape into the women's army car and go to Paris, where Gertrude Stein had been. And to see, of course, you know, little did I know that I was never going to get to see Paris. So I remember I went down to the Black Hawk Hotel in Davenport, Iowa, where the recruiting sergeant was, and she was just darling to me. She looked sort of like all my old gym teachers in drag. <laughs> Stomping around with little earrings and, you know, her hair slicked back, but very daintily done, so you couldn't tell she was a dyke. But I knew. Hello again. I'm Vito Russo, and I'm here with Lucy Massey-Phoenix and Peter Adair, who are two of six filmmakers who have been working for the past five years on a film, a doc new documentary film called Word is Out, Stories of Some of Our Lives. The film has been playing in San Francisco since December, and it opens in New York very soon. Hello, Peter. Hi, Hi Lucy. Hi. I'd like you uh, to tell us a little bit about the reaction to the film in San Francisco. What's been going on out there? Well, it, it, uh, it was a film that we have been making for a long time and never intended it for television, uh, for theaters. And the response from early screenings led us to think that it would be worthwhile testing it in the theater, and we did. And we opened at the beginning of December. And it's still there. <laughs> uh, 
And based on that response and the length that it's running there, and we don't know how much longer it's going to run. It's an open-ended run. We decided to open in New York, which we'll probably do near the end of February. Not uh -huh. sure where yet. Tell us a little bit about the film, uh, about your concept, uh, original concept for the film, and what you now think it's turned into for each of you. You started. You started. Start. Okay. <laughs> um, well, originally the film, I was a producer for television and, and felt that I never saw anything that was really good on gay people, other than you know gay people come and talk on on uh, the you know some talk shows. I and mean, I felt there was no really uh, major kind of work on lesbians and gay men, and I felt something needed if, if, for classroom use, if nothing else. And so that's how the film began. It's just a film of portraits for classroom use. This was five years ago, and as it, it sort of grew from there, in early screenings of the film, there were eight people uh, uh, presented in portraits, and uh, audience were looking, audiences were looking at it and feeling that, oh, this is who gay people are. And so it was a much smaller film, and we realized that the only way to answer the sort of importance that audiences were giving to the film, which we had never intended, was to enlarge in it. So we then... Uh, shot a great deal more footage. We ended up shooting 50 hours of footage and cutting it down to two hours, which it is now a little longer than two hours. And it's simply portraits of 26 gay men and women from all over the country. Uh, so I guess Cut down from how many people originally? Um, <clears throat> at the beginning, 140, about 140 interviews have been done on videotape. Okay. As we were doing before any of the film was shot, uh, videotapes were taken of people. Uh -huh. And then um, at each point in, in which the film has been enlarged, other videotapes have been done. So we have quite uh, a lot of experiences of people on videotape. Really? And the, the people who are on, in the film now um, repre represent themselves. Essentially, they are the interview, the individual interviews. Right. But we also very much wanted them to speak to and for a very a wide spectrum of people, both straight and gay, I think. I may, mm. I mean, I think that the appeal of the film is a very large appeal because of, because the experiences of the people in the film. Mm -hmm. The reason for the videotaping is that we felt an enormous responsibility uh, because since there is no film, or I, to my knowledge, any book on the sort of the, the, the breadth of the gay community, we felt that it, we had to go out and find out what it was, even though we're gay, all six of the filmmakers are gay. And for that reason, we traveled across the country videotaping interviews with people to really find out. Because I think almost every gay person's knowledge of the, of the community is in their immediate circle of friends. And uh, so then based on those, those interviews, we then went back and filmed the people that are in the film. Right. Yeah. And this is the most incredible array of kinds of people in the film. Uh, even though there are, there are only 26, as, as whittled down from, from 140, what kind of criteria? I mean, did you go out looking for specific kinds of people, or did you suddenly discover that there were fabulous people that you wanted to get and you couldn't do without? Did you have any kind of an original criteria for choosing gay people for the film? Well, I, I think our original criteria was people that were just interesting on screen. Yeah. Um, but the amazing thing is, is the, the project began very slowly and we began videotaping interviews and the more we began doing the more we realized how these were stories that have never been told. Thou, you know, every tape that we did uh, was fascinating in its own way and I would say at least half of them were as good as the ones that finally we used, were as amazing. Because yeah. there are thousands and thousands of years of stories that have never been allowed to be told. 
it was just sort of a man's role being in the army and uh, it attracted a lot of the women I knew came down for their interviews in drag what do you mean wearing men's clothes really yeah yeah wearing argyle socks and pinstripe suits and the haircut just like a man with sideburns shaved over the years the whole bit and they let them in you know <laughs> like that <laughs> much to the credit of the army psychiatrist who would say, you know, have you ever been in love with a woman? And of course, you would say, of course not. <laughs> What's a woman? <laughs> I just love men sitting there in your pinstripe suit. Uh, I had been working in Tahoe <clears throat> as a change girl, even though I was a bit young. And he was in the service. And he called me from San Diego. And being young and living in a, an atmosphere in Tahoe that was really fast, I just took up one day and split. Went down to San Diego and we went down to Mexico and were married. It was a few days before I was 18, actually. And uh, then we came back to the States and he was out of the service. We came up to San Mateo and we lived here and right away my children started being born. When I was about 14, I was going with a girl at that time and the guy she had been going with before had been gay and had taken her down to uh, the gay beach in in, uh, in Santa Monica in Los Angeles and so she thought it'd be a hoot and took me down there one time hmm. and so I uh, well did she know well that was it you know I walked out of the beach and I was uh, you know, uh, uh, I know I was a I guess a fairly hunky little teenager and I walk out there and I got invited to parties and I met people and did things and people took me out and I said fantastic you know this is for me so I decided I would uh, ask my mother just exactly what a homosexual was oh my god she, her reaction was just so violent that uh, it's really scared me she screamed you know, where did you hear that word I felt uh, the desire and the warmth and the need for company of men, which was related sexually to, and, and I couldn't explain this to anybody. You know, if I, if I was dating uh, girls, you know, it would have been maybe, uh, you know, my dad would have liked that, as he did when my brother dated girls and, you know, even uh, fooled around with girls. It was a big thing, and my dad used to joke about it, and it was a very in thing, and it was fun, and everybody accepted that, but I, I couldn't bring that home. But then at nine, my, the family moved to the farm again, to a ranch, and it was there within a year that I met the young man, uh, Joe, uh, with whom I fell in love. That was, I was 10, I guess, and Joe was 12 when that occurred. I came in with my suitcase and staggering down to the mess hall, and I heard a voice from one of the barracks say, Good God, Elizabeth, look, here comes another one. And... They knew you were gay. Yeah. Why? I don't know. Did. Do you think you were effectively dykey then? No. Not all. Never was, really. One short period when I was first in the Army, I tried it, and I looked so weird. Why? Well, I just don't... I'm, I'm not shaped like a man, you know. Yeah, there was a lot of pressure that you should look butch, if you were. Huh. And, uh, of course, you wanted to. Because you wanted to be identified, you know, as uh, a dyke. But it was, it was frightening, because if you weren't really like that, and you knew you were acting all the time, and there was no way to counter it so you could really be yourself. So I think our first criteria was just people that we responded to that came across on screen the best. Yeah. And then uh, we began having other criteria such as trying to get people outside of, uh, of the Bay Area where the original people were done and so on. Right, right. There was a con I, I noticed in the film, for instance, there are some people who are 
recognizable to the gay community. Henry Hay, who was one of the early founders of the Mattachine Society in the 50s, who has a marvelous perspective on gay history, what it was like to be gay in the 30s and the 40s. And there are people who talk what it was like to be gay in the 50s in their various situations. But did you make a conscious effort not to use too many people who are so-called movement type individual stars recognizable by gay people who read the gay press uh, and make it just ordinary lesbians and gay men from all walks of life instead? Uh, was there discussion yes. about that? <laughs> yes, Lucy. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> we did. We, we, um, the impact of the film is in, uh, I think, in, in its universality. Mm -hmm. and, and the whole emphasis on stars, which, um, well, there is an emphasis on stars, and stars are played up, and, right. and these people have, have stories to tell, and they're stars in their own right. right. So we didn't, we really wanted um, the common experience of people to be told. Right. And as it turns out, no one's experience is common, and everyone's experience is common. Right. We all have, we all share um, some things, and, and yet each one of these people um, has a story has that hasn't own. been told yeah. in a way that probably stars more... Yeah, well, have been. Have, have been, been. Yeah. yeah, exactly. I also think the, the form of the film is very much uh, follows what Lucy says and that everyone's story is individual but they're all the same and that in the, the film tells all the all 26 stories more or less at the same time in other words the people's stories and there is a kind of commonality that emerges from that that I think speaks initially to all gay people at least that's what we've been told and then uh, beyond that the, a lot of our experiences although a lot of us don't like to believe this are very much like straight experiences first sex is in some ways very much like uh, uh, hetero first sex or homo first sex has the same kind of traumas attached or right. similar traumas. Yeah, and so the people watching, whoever the people watching the film are, they're going uh, to find themselves probably or at least think about their history and their lives and they're certainly going to hear people talking about things that they have not talked with somebody before about. Many of us don't talk with each other in the same way that the people in the film talk. Right. It's interesting, yeah. go on. No, go right. ahead. The, uh, in, the, in, this, in this experimental run in San Francisco, we uh, gave out forms to the audience to see uh, if indeed they were getting off on the film. And we, out of these forms, we've now gotten about 2,000 back. Okay. We've asked the audience, both the straight members of the audience and the gay members, would you recommend this film to a friend? We've gotten seven who said no. That's incredible. So it's talking to somebody. Well, perhaps you will recommend this film to a friend. It's called Word is Out, Stories of Some of Our Lives, and you'll be able to see it soon in your local theater. Thank you, Lucy and Peter, and good night from the Emerald City. This is Vito Russo. Ice Palace 57, a new age in disco. Ice Palace 57, the total nocturnal experience. The best location, the brightest room, and the most beautiful people. Ice Palace 57. No membership required. Hard to believe, but true. Come to Man's Country. See what we're all about and what we have to offer. Man's Country is a full facility, multi-leveled complex that was designed to feature something for everyone. Come to Man's Country and develop your body, or a friendship with somebody else's. 
Visit us once and you'll come again and again. For the best workout in town, it's Man's Country, 28 West 15th Street. Wouldn't you like to get out of the city once in a while? Are you tired of the same old places, the same old faces? Wouldn't you like a place that wasn't too far away, but just far enough? A place where movies are shown twice a week, where you can play pool or pinball with friends or just friendly strangers. If this sounds like your kind of place, make headway for Billy the Kid in Jackson Heights, Queens. Take the BMT to 76th Street. We're located directly under the L at 7607 Roosevelt Avenue in Jackson Heights. Billy the Kid, come on. The Big Top is growing. The people who brought you the finest in adult films now introduce the Broadway Arms, Manhattan's newest 24-hour action spot. The Broadway Arms is a one-stop, complete leisure facility designed for your total enjoyment. While there, visit the Cafe Expresso, home of the Queen Burger, the place where you can get a good piece of meat anytime. The Big Top Theater, the Broadway Arms, and the Cafe Expresso all open 24 hours. We doze, but never close. To many villagers, the name Jan Wallman is as familiar as Coca-Cola. Her popularity as a hostess and impresario are common in both straight and gay circles. Her restaurant, located here at 28 Cornelia Street in the Greenwich Village, is a regular spot for many celebrities and non-celebrities who she's helped launch into show business over the years. Good evening, Jan Wallman. Hello, Frank. Quite a crowd you have here this evening. We're pretty busy. Jan, how did you get started in this business? Oh, it was so long ago, I don't even remember. Oh, you must have. Come on, you can tell us something about this. I started out in the nightclub business, but I'm very happy to be in the restaurant business today because I think that's what's happening today. Restaurants and bars, intimate little places are the fun places today. You say intimate. That's interesting because you're on a first-name basis with, with, it seems like, half of New York. Tell me something about that. Well, I've been around this business for a little while, Frank. It's, uh, you know, I didn't start today, and I've met a great many people, and I'm very happy that they come in to see me. And they keep coming back and back. Well, I think we have something to offer here. We have very good food. We have good drinks. We have Ava Williams playing the piano on Sunday nights, Wes McAfee on Friday and Saturday. So there's always something happening down here. And your charisma, probably. Thank you very much. Which you probably discount. You don't even consider that. <laughs> You're very modest. Thank you. You've helped push many, uh, many a rising star along the way. I mean, I know you were on for years on Grove Street. Can you tell me something about that? Well, a lot of people started with me, and I was instrumental in the very beginnings of their careers, and I was interested in watching them move, watching it happen with people like Joan Rivers and Woody Allen and George Siegel, the movie star, and Dick Cavett, and my darling Joanne Worley and Ruth Buzzy, and Barry Manilow used to work for me as an accompanist. Some marvelous people started out in my room, Stiller and Mira, many friends. Have you ever had any aspirations yourself? Oh, no, no, not really. But you started, you starred, you were featured in a cult classic, Dragula, which was uh, some years back, which we've, we've been trying to get a hold of on a print to use on the show for some time. Tell me something about that. You played Cal Culver's mother in a movie. He was a... I played Cal Culver's mother. That, that's what I did in that movie. It was a lot of fun. We had a wonderful time doing it. But I didn't envision myself as having a real movie career. <laughs> <laughs> it worked, though, didn't it? It worked, and I hope you can get it for the show. I think it would be a lot of fun. Tell me something about Ava Williams. Ava Williams is a marvelous lady who's been singing and playing the piano for a long time. She's always kept very young and very beautiful and very today with what she does. She does the old songs, too. She's got something for everybody. She's going to play something for us tonight? She's going to play something for us tonight. Whenever you're ready. And with any special selections? 
Whatever you'd like to hear. Okay. Whatever the house would like to hear. <laughs> okay. Without further ado, let's listen to Ava. Thank you. Now it's good, isn't it great, isn't it grand, isn't it swell, isn't it fun, isn't it nowadays? Men everywhere, girls everywhere, jazz everywhere, love everywhere, isn't it fun nowadays? You can live the life you're living, like the life you like. You can even marry Harry and cruise around with Ike. Now that's good, isn't it great, isn't it grand, isn't it swell? Isn't it fun, isn't it, but nothing stays. In 50 years or so, is bound to change, I know. But isn't it heaven now, Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Oh my goodness, I think I love the advertisements in that show as much as I love the interviews. Hope you enjoyed that. We'll have more coming up in the future. Here's Asher Lloyd, another Australian singer, with his song, Younger. I make my own way Take it as it comes I'm gonna take it day by day Yeah, I know that'll be okay When the tide's so high, let's believe I'm alright that way Oh, right that way oh. When the sun goes down, tide gets rough Let's get out this town on our peace and love Sun goes. 
windows down Tide gets rough, let's get out this town On our peace and love It's rough, let's get out this town on our peace and love. When the sun go down, the tide is rough, let's get out this town on our peace and love. Oh, baby, I got you, if you got me, take a little trip, we ain't getting no sleep. Feel the sin between your toes and we never miss a beat. And we don't give a damn if we out of money. Studios of Bay FM in Byron Bay and broadcasting across Australia on the Community Radio Network, you've been listening to Not Thinking Straight with Michael Mack. Thanks for tuning in. Until next time, goodbye. Well, you can twist and It's good for my voice, but you won't fool the children of the revolution.